Can I just say, um, no, I'm just looking at my notes. Okay. I just don't know how we're going to structure this because I'm not American. You know what? What, as if Americans have an innate sense of structure, we're going to American style just like barrel into this. (laughs) But I have a good way to start, which is uh, that First of all, we've been promising everyone that we're going to deal with the with the ramifications of Manuela Gate, which is not a really a Manuela Gate. But we interviewed Manuela Spinelli a couple of episodes ago about Irish food in Italy. Sorry, the reverse, Italian food in Ireland. And she said that um, she went to this place, Ragazzi, where they gave her a, a dish that they would never give Irish people. And she said that was a matriciana. And everyone was sort of confused by that, like, People, Irish people were like, we, we ate a matriciana in the 90s. What's going on? Uh, she later has corrected that and said that it was um, it was carbonara and that no Italian restaurant would have the guts to serve Irish people raw egg back in the day. And that made a lot more sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, and also she said there was this whole thing about her saying she had to bring pasta from Italy. And I think what we've decided is there was pasta on the shelves at Tesco in Italy, sorry, in Ireland in the 90s. but um, it was not very good quality. It, it was probably also Roma pasta. I think when even when I moved here, a lot of the pasta, fresh and dry, wasn't the double zero flour, so it wasn't high gluten. So right. it, it was like got spongy. soggy, yeah, so fast, yeah, um, yeah. In that episode of Manuela, a seed was planted in my mind, which we're going to address today. Which was she said that Americans coming. Irish Americans coming to Ireland as tourists uh, had changed the market for Italian food. And so the Italian food that you had was um, was food that was somehow catering to or trying to capture the American tourist dollar. And these were Americans coming from places like Boston, New York, who had an Italian-American vision of Italian food. So there is this idea that I found really interesting that because there were American tourists here in such numbers so early because of this whole, you know, Irish American um, immigration story and diaspora story, um, you had you had a local culture kind of craning towards um, pleasing Americans. And I'm wondering, so that made me wonder, like, what's going on in Ireland? What is the influence of American tourism visits, study abroad? Um I suppose there's a related question of all these Irish people who go to the U.S. with you know J one visas or visit family or whatever, and come back, and that also changes their tastes. But Julia, can I say an Americanization problem or factor or something um, to food here in Ireland? Can I also just say actually um, just about the Manuela comment about Italian American because I was thinking about this and I actually talked to some of my friends who studied American friends who studied here. Um, I don't know whether it was. Uh, that Italian food became Americanized for the Americans. It was, in my opinion, that the Irish perception of what Italian food was, was Italian American. And maybe whether it was like Scorsese films or maybe that, you know, that, that whole pizza, you know, that whole pizza notion, it wasn't to court Italian tourists per se. You mean American tourists? American tourists, right? It was just, this was their perception of Italian food. But isn't that interesting that when we're trying to think about the relationship between Italy and Ireland, that we have to have this third term of uh, yeah. of Americans interjecting in that conversation, you know? 
couple of things that I actually wanted to talk about was um, sort of American tourists coming to Ireland, uh, many of them Irish American, and some of the big mistakes that would, they would make. The first thing would be asking for corned beef and cabbage. What do you mean, um, like when they at, go to a restaurant? When they go to a restaurant, right? They come to Ireland and they want to find, and I know um, I know Irish people have complained about this. It's like, What is up with Americans always asking for corned beef and cabbage? This is not an Irish dish. What do you mean? Like they come, like even today, they'll go to a restaurant and ask for even corned today, beef and cabbage? Even today, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an Irish-American dish, right? It evolved in America because what, you know, bacon and cabbage... Um, bacon and cap for a lot of Irish immigrants to America, they took the bacon and cabbage and realized that, you know, beef was a lot, like there was so much beef in America and they were thrilled. And they basically turned bacon and cabbage into corned beef and cabbage. Oh, that's interesting. Um, the other really big gaffe though, that they, um, that a lot of American Irish tourists ask for is a black and tan. Which I, is a drink. Have you heard of this? Oh, my it's, God. Oh, my God. It's like, it's just, oh. and it's a drink of Guinness and lager. And I think it was invented in an English pub. And, of course, as many of our Irish listeners know, a black and tan are the British that are recruited. Uh, the, the British recruited constables who basically kicked the ass out of northern Irish rebels. What about the and- unbelievably offensive drink? Uh, a Jack Daniels a shot of Jack Daniels. Irish, oh, Irish car bombs. Irish but car bombs. You would, Irish yeah. car, but you would know. You would generally know. I think, like, because um, again, uh, sure, like, sure, a little, like, a little frisson, like of, a little frisson of compunction hits the American order in Irish car bomb in Ireland. Yeah, so, like, like, you don't go to a pub wrong about this. Yeah. Whereas a black and tan, a lot of them don't understand. Uh-huh. The it's a little more coded. Yeah. It's more coded. Well, um, okay, so those are that, so those are moments when the American coming back to Ireland looking for their some idealized version of their heritage or some authentic version of their heritage um, gets it wrong, um, yeah. right? When there's like a, a miscommunication there. But are there other ways in which they've slowly over time shaped what is on offer and and they get it right, so to speak? I mean, I was telling uh, both of you about this um, earlier, I think, but. Uh, years like in the nineties, when I was a teenager, I read an article that really made me think about food writing and travel writing as a serious thing. And I'm so sorry to everyone that I don't have, I don't know who was written by. It was like pre-internet and I can't find it, but it was about the way that the Irish pub in the countryside was being, um, turned into a, was being complete, was turned into a simulacrum of the real pub that it was being eroded and kind of gutted and turned into these tourist fantasy traps. Um, and this guy had traveled around Ireland and been really melancholy because he couldn't find the real thing. And that was already in the nineties. And I'm not saying that that is at all what the landscape looks like. I'm just describing what this article is saying 20 some years ago. Um, but, um, but yeah, I guess where are, what, what like zones of, um, Irish cultural, I'm sorry, Irish culinary culture have been changed or haven't. Can I say something just about the pub? The the 1990s um, was the birth of the Irish pub as a franchise. So I think you were reading that article, but that but because that's when the company, the original company, was founded. It was founded in 1991. So even though we think that doesn't happen in Ireland, there are pubs in Ireland that are part of this franchise business or this. So 
it, and actually, something, on, yeah. on that tip, uh, there's a show called Planet Money, which is done by National Public Radio in the U.S., episode 764, Pub in a Box. I highly recommend everyone chase that down. It's about the company that sells uh, basically all you need to set up an Irish pub anywhere in the world. It's really, it's really interesting on the economics behind the, like, the, pub, uh, the pub explosion. I was, um, I came across, um, again, about this room, the, the American Irish romanticization of the pub and, um, and, and how it's actually transferred here, which is, there was a 1950s movie called The Quiet Man, (laughs) directed by John Ford and starring John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. And even for Irish people, like it encapsulated sort of this nostalgic, nostalgia Ireland, right? And the pub itself is called Pat Cohen's, which was built on a Hollywood soundstage. And I just think it's really interesting because I think it's not just Americans, but Irish people also. It's like that that perfect romantic pub doesn't exist anymore, which I do think that American tourists are looking for when they come here. And they also have... Um, a notion of what it's supposed to be. And so um, so I've had Irish food writers describe to me that a pub in Ireland, you either go for the chats or you go for music. You never go for food. When Americans come to Ireland, they want a pub that has food, music, and chats, and also like preferably scenery, which is probably, you know, Johnny... Fox's pub in Wicklow right now, right? But mm-hmm. it's a construct. It doesn't because exist. That, it doesn't, well, it was never, it had never existed in the Irish tradition. So that's yeah. one way, that's like one concrete way uh, in which the American tourist dollar has kind of catalyzed the birth of something here um, or changed an existing tradition. Um, because, like, what about a public, let's say, Neary's? And for those of you who are listening abroad or, or don't know, um, you know, it's a, a couple of a couple of seats, some nooks, never any music. Um, not your idea of a kind of romantic place that's quite brightly lit, um, right? There's not. I don't think you can't or you cannot order a cocktail. <laughs> like I don't think you can. Maybe order a sandwich. Maybe. Um, I think a toasty, <laughs> a toasty if you're really with yeah. the bartender. And the you if you don't you might go in there and think it was quite unprepossessing actually until you sat and kind of realized that there's a, the austerity matters. Like it leaves so much room for, for conversation and thinking. And it's like, it's actually such a a thoughtful place. But if your image of an Irish pub is like this gregarious, um, you know, folksy, loud, charming spot, you would be really disappointed. With music playing in the background and you can get a pie. All (laughs) these things. Yeah. You know, which I think that, you know, that I think that um, we've been like Americans have been informed that an Irish pub is about. Um, I found it. So um, when I talked to uh, my friend Grania, who runs Irish food trails, she had some really interesting insights, which was that she said about 15 years ago, every American that was coming to Ireland was reasonably wealthy and they had some family connection here and they usually would be maybe buying a summer home. So they were actually much more, I don't know, connected with that tradition. How long ago? Uh, like 15 years ago. Okay. Cause I was going to say even 
15 years ago, there was already the beginning of the like cheap flight phenomenon. The cheap flight, if yeah. you were to haul your family here 20, 25, 30 years ago, you would really need to be middle class or more, you know? Upper yeah, you would need upper middle class. And you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't also have a lot of resources, right? You would, you know, you, you just have to kind of roll with the punches, right? Like whatever Ireland has to give to you, you just need to embrace that. Um, which is why I also think that a lot of Americans who came here probably had some family. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the thing that Grania pointed out was because of cheap flights, there are more Americans coming through to Dublin. She said that a lot of her, a lot of the American tourists that she comes across, this is their first trip to Europe ever. Right. Yeah. And, um, and then, and Dublin is their first stop. Right. It's kind of a gateway. Before they go to Paris, yeah. before they go to Milan, before they go to Rome. Well, and that was and the then, genius of Erlingus to, was to make itself yeah. a, a great carrier between the U.S. and other European cities. My mom did a uh, did a food tour when she's here. Now, caveat: yeah. she's not American. <laughs> yeah. um, but she, yeah, she wanted to do. Um, she wanted to. She was only here for a short while, and she wanted to get to know the food and have taste some interesting things. And she really enjoyed it. Actually, I can send you guys. She did a really cute, really good write up for her gourmet. Oh, back I think, but I think she went. I think she went to Irish. I think she went to Irish food trails. Are you sure? I don't know which one she did. Um, there's quite a few. Can I can I say yeah, I Yeah, there's a whole industry yeah. of this. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. I did one on a ba- on a Hindu that's bachelorette party for those of you at home in the US. Um yeah, like the, there's a whole industry of these things where they go around and you taste a little you do a little whiskey, you do a little cheese, you yeah. learn a little history. I think the most high end of these um food tours is um I, I think from what I've seen and the ones that I've done as a as a tourist and a resident is the one called Fab Food Trails that Evelyn Coyle uh, runs. And I was very interested talking to her that her perception of Americans has changed so much that she feels a lot of the Americans that come now to her tours are people who are very interested in contemporary Ireland rather than in traditional Ireland. Um, And she talked a lot about what restaurants they were visiting after maybe doing a tour with her. And a lot of them were going to Galway, to Anya, they were going to Chapter One. So I found that a little bit, you know, maybe I'm stuck in, you know, a different era of American tourism. But it is true that there is definitely um, a new level of Irish food that caters to the very, very rich Americans who are very cultured, some of them. And if you saw in the news recently, um, JP McMahon, we always talk about JP. He's going to think we have a crush on him. Um, He said that 70% of his business um, comes from Americans. And that was a figure I would have never guessed. Were you guys surprised by that figure? Yeah, that's huge. Well, also, and, and, but um, I talked to somebody, um, a project, uh, O'Gallher from Boxy House, who had um, a restaurant in Temple Bar back in 1988. Did you just drop a stapler on your foot? <laughs> I think. <I'd- laughs> What's Boxy House? Boxy House is a restaurant that does boxy, which is the potato pancakes, and they, they're in Northern Ireland. But uh, Podrick is from Leitrim, um, but he and so it's this Irish restaurant, right? You know, Irish pancakes with stew and stuff like that, and it's been around since 1988. And, you know, and Temple Bar back in 1988 was not a tourist destination. Um, That's like impossible to imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, But he said that back in the 80s, 
uh, Dublin was where Americans flew into and then they went to Galway. And again, I think it's back to when we're talking about this nostalgic vision of Ireland, which is bucolic and pastoral. Yeah. They don't want, you know, that, you know, in the, in the eighties, they didn't want, you know, a city. Right. Yeah. They want cottages and music and locals cracking jokes. Yeah. They don't want buses in queues and people in suits going to work. <laughs> they don't want, yeah. but I wonder whether what Blanca is describing um, with fab food trails and this whole kind of industry and the stats that JP gave about, um, the amount of Americans that come here and, and and throw cash around. Whether we're talking about a kind of a backlash to this stereotypical vision of Ireland, you know, that now there's, um, you know, just like in the Nordic countries, for example, or um, Blanca, possibly in Spain, I don't know, um, that there's people, their authenticity sells. I think it's authenticity, but also um, I think it's the modern vision of Ireland. I think people who are of Irish descent in America have evolved and changed and they don't want, like you have enough uh, pubs in Chicago, like Julia and I have lived in Chicago. I was very disappointed to find out Fado was a prefab. I was very, very disappointed. Oh my God. Can I just tell you that the first time my husband, who is Irish, um, came to visit me. We, we met at a wedding in South Africa. And then a month later he came from, he was living in London at the time I was living in Chicago and he got on a plane and he came to visit me. And by chance, it just happened to be St. Patrick's day. <laughs> and he was like, what fresh hell is this? <laughs> that like the, like the river being green. everyone green. with like green face paint on my brother and his girlfriend were wearing matching green, um, like, like checkered suits. Like he looked like the mayor of, of like a, of Monopoly town or something. It was like, and we went to an Irish pub where no one, I was like my, my husband or my, my boyfriend just got in from Ireland and everyone was like, what? I can't hear you. Who wants shots? Irish car bombs. Anyway, he was like, um, nice to meet you. <laughs> anyway, we're married. It's fine. But the vision of Ireland that exists in like the American Irish pub is like, wacko including sometimes like fado right it's the fado is a club where people like do drugs and there's like three floors and it's it it just does not even correspond to this like stereotypical vision of like mandolin playing nooks you know like like donahoe's in dublin or something i mean it's like a whole nother beat but donahue's is it again a tourist construct but by the way i've had some great nights at donahue's donahoe's whatever (laughs) and i always tell people to go there Yeah. And can I say another thing that is interesting? Do you know, um, economist David McWilliams writes a lot about the Irish pub index. And he says, this is a quote from him. He says, the Irish pub helps enormously in projecting a positive, friendly image of Ireland all over the world. And, you know, I just reread this article and this index that he has. And I'm thinking from my Spanish experience or American experience, I think the Irish pub, because of that disconnect with the food and the contemporary life in Ireland, I think it does, it portrays an image of Ireland, of an Ireland that doesn't exist anymore. And it never existed. Mm. Like if you go to Finnegan's in Docky and you see like what type of a pub, it's a community place. People are talking, there's no music. There's, you know, that's so far removed from the pubs we would have in Madrid or Chicago. So I don't know the, the, is it, is it good for Ireland to have that massive export of these franchise pubs? For the food industry, probably not. 
For Guinness, yes. <laughs> the boxy example is really great because the guy has been around since 1988. And yeah, and he was saying that originally because he was in Temple Bar and there was no tourism in Dublin, that he was serving Irish customers. And that in and of itself was a challenge because a lot of Irish customers, when they eat out, they want an exotic experience. And that itself has not changed that much. So the idea of serving Irish food is reasonably new. So is that why you were saying that the Winding Stair, which is a restaurant on the quay uh, overlooking the Liffey, very scenic, and tourists who've been to Dublin listening to this might have been recommended it because apparently it's exclusively for tourists, but I didn't know that. I think it's delicious. Like it's extraordinarily delicious food, and it, but it just sort of like makes the most of Irish seasonal produce and there's nothing about it that's like pandering. Yeah, but it's it's what what it is is it it actually sells a wonderful Irish experience. It like is, if yeah. you are a tourist, if you are a tourist, you want to go upstairs. If you are a particular kind of tourist, you want to go up a rickety stair, um, from a bookshop and overlook the Liffey, where everything you know, where all of the angles of you know you, you've got a sloping roof. And you're eating things like boar with wild plums and haddock with cheddar mash. And that, you know, that's, that is Ireland encapsulated for a tourist. Right. But Irish people don't want to do that. Irish people would rather go have like delicious Szechuan food or something. It's, I mean, it's the same, you know, I mean, we all, you mean, you guys are Maybe Szechuan is a a stretch, but like French or Italian or something. Yeah, Indian or, yeah, I mean, like we've all lived in different places and sometimes like the most fun thing to do, right, is to actually take someone who's visiting you and be a tourist for a day. Because, you know, when you live in a city... You're not, you know, you you don't want that picturesque tourist experience. And it's a great thing to do. I mean, I remember doing it in New York. Yeah, but for example, when French people eat out, they very frequently like to go have French food. But that's because they're like French And Spanish and Italian, yeah. Yeah. They're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted to go over some numbers. Um, So if there's 11 million tourists in Ireland a year, 25% are American. Oh, only 25% now. Yeah. 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 Well, see, that speaks to, I think, the intra-European cheapo flight circuit. Yeah, and... Very interesting. Americans spend per visit, like this is 2017 figures, but it's like 731 euro. And of that, 255 is on food and drink. And the British are the ones who spend the least. And the Chinese, the Indians, and um, the Mexicans spend the most. So this is on a report. Yeah. Yeah. But Americans are way up there compared to, I don't know, the Spanish, for example. So they are coming here with more money than a lot of the other visitors because they're coming on a transatlantic flight, which is much more expensive. They normally tend to be people with more money than somebody who's coming or from. They do, or they do more research. Yes. Another yes. thing that a lot of people have said. And again, like, you know, when I was talking to people who've done tours, when they say that, you know, some of their, the Americans that they have, are it's the first time they're in Europe. Yeah. Um, and but also one of the things about Americans is that they're pleased with Irish food because their expectations are really low. Um, That's interesting. Uh, but even the Irish Americans, Irish Americans, right? Like they, they just they, they. This is not 
food would not be a reason for I a see. lot of American tourists to come over. They're here so to get like a pleasantly... cross tattooed on their lower right. back. They're not here yeah. for um for and like a pleasant... high class culinary experience. Right. And they're that pleasantly really surprised. condescending. I just want everyone to yeah. know that, that like <laughs> I love Celtic crosses and lower back tattoos. Go ahead. <laughs> but um but the thing that I think also I don't know whether um they were directly influencing uh each other, but I feel as though Irish craft beer and artisanal whiskey, which for me is a really modern thing here, um, definitely American tourists are attracted to that. So eight years ago when I moved here and I had friends coming over, they wanted to go to a pub and they wanted to have Irish craft beer and they wanted to have artisanal whiskey. And that was not available. You had Guinness, you had Heineken, and you might have Budweiser. Right. They had this construct of like, you know, these, again, like small cottage beers and small cottage whiskeys. And since then, there is now a craft beer and an artisanal whiskey culture. If you go to right? Dolan Nesja, which is one of those dark old man pubs, um, you'll see on the chalkboard of whiskeys above the bar, there's one that's like 1500 euros a, a, t- a oh, glass. Yeah. And, but and we, so I asked new. about it once. Um, and he, he basically laughed it off. He said, it's, he said, it's there for the Americans and the Japanese American and, yeah. and Japanese who come here in search of this particular thing. He's like, he's like, I don't even know if we still have the bottle. We usually keep it locked up in the basement somewhere. But then below that, there were all these, that was basically a kind of a joke, but then there were others that were like 80 euros a glass or, you know, whatever. And he said, uh, Irish people drink, um, what did he say? What brand? Jameson. He's Irish people drink Jameson's. And then yeah. he, he, the price for a glass of Jameson's is like, whatever. It was like nothing. Right. But there's, but then, but then again, like something like the palace bar, um, which is a lot like Denny Nesbitt's, right. It's the palace bar, um, which is an old, old pub, beautiful stained glass windows. And now they have this enormous selection of whiskey with a bartender who, you know, is usually sort of a little bit weathered and has an amazing knowledge of that whiskey. That is not something that is traditional. That is something that is contemporary. Sure. But um, just going back to a little bit about numbers, 53% of tourists that come to Ireland are looking for beer, whiskey. You know, the, the, it's a lot of that ex- of the experience that they're looking for. And, you know, they're not saying, I'm going to Ireland to look for food. But I think a lot of people find it. And another interesting statistics, this is all in the... Culture Ireland um, tourism plan for the next five years. Um, another thing that was interesting was that the 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 countries or the people from the countries that were the most satisfied and the least satisfied. So the Americans, seventy five percent of Americans had a very positive experience, and they with food. And um, the, at the bottom of the list were three countries, Australia, Spain, and France, which I also found interesting. But I think Americans are coming to Ireland and they're finding what, like they're finding a better quality than they're expecting, like you said, May, and that's been quantified. People are saying a lot of American tourists, the first time that they're here, they're only here for two days before they go off somewhere else. So if, you want, if you're here for two days, you kind of want to encapsulate an Irish experience. Mm. And even, for instance, um, so Coleman Andrews, who did Country Cooking of Ireland um, and was the former editor of Sever, like 
when he came here for his, I don't know whether it's 60th or 70th birthday, right? Everybody wanted to go to Winding Stair and eat cockles. And then they ended up at Temple Bar doing a sing-along. Because still, you still want... Somebody who's like incredibly sophisticated about food. Someone who's incredibly sophisticated about food and completely knowledgeable about Ireland still wants the, you know... The crack. The crack. The crack. (laughs) You need that crack. Um, You need the crack. You know what? When I have guests, I always look forward to going to Winding Stair. I think it's so good. (laughs) I go to the Legal Eagle. Eagle. (laughs) My place of choice for Americans is the Legal Eagle. So Illegal Eagle's great. And it's the same, you know, the same restaurant group. So it's just, I wish there were more restaurants like that, to be honest. Well, Elaine Murphy was a genius because also she... Who's Elaine Murphy? Basically, with, Elaine Murphy um, is the manager of both of those restaurants. And um, what she did was she put poetry into each of the dishes, right? So, you know, you're not just getting, I don't know, pork and prunes. Like she would just, you know, the descriptions would be evocative of like a part in Ireland and, you know, and it would make, you know, and, and she would just draw you into that culinary poetry and you're like, yes, I want a taste of this. I think there's also a kind of, I'm going to say poetry to affordability, but not, not poetry, mm-hmm. but there is a kind of moral, there's a big heartedness to really making an effort to make your food affordable. And I think that's really on display there. Like you're so unstressed as you're dining because you know the bill isn't going to be bonkers. And I, like my heart still soars when I think about those few places in New York that were like that, like Schiller's or, you know, the places that you knew you could kind of go. And surprisingly, there would be a pathway for you through the menu where you could have a great night and feel like a big deal and like um, and go home without hurting. No, that's a good point. So I wonder whether, I yeah, maybe mean, I, the, the question about the American, the affluent American tourist is maybe that's actually, that's not, that's really not the situation at all. That these there are some are, restaurants. I think if you look at some of the restaurants that are not opening, I think chapter one's not opening t- until September. They also rely on a lot of the higher end of the market, like in tourism and things like that. So at least that's what um, Evelyn from Fab Food Trails was saying. So I do think there are, you know, at that higher end, there is a reliance on people with high dispo- disposable income. I don't think, you know, the legal eagle would be like that. The legal eagle would be a very, like a lot of locals go there. Yeah, right. They capture the audience. They're right, they're right across from the courthouse, right? Yes. So they get a lot. Um, of- and they're also, and I think that, I, for instance, I think that legal eagle is maybe more almost Irish locals because there's the courthouse because um, originally it was a pub that used to have loads of barristers there and they still attract that. Yeah. Same audience. Gosh, it's so sad. There's so many places that I want to revisit before we go. And I just don't know if we're going to get the chance to, I only had one meal at legal legal and it was like so outstanding. Um, I need to take a good time to mention that this is my last episode. (laughs) And before you go, we need to do, yeah. I was fired for profanity. (laughs) My daughter fired you. Yeah, Matilda fired me. So there's one last thing before we before we go. I wanted to mention there is this store, this online store here called uh, what, like AmericanStuff.com or something? What is it? American Food, no? AmericanFood.ie or something. Yeah, IE, yeah. And what's funny about the stuff on that site is it 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 it's not just American stuff that you can't get, because what can't you get? Like we live in a completely like global, you know, um, supermarket world like there's you can get there's old el paso and all the shelves here there's whatever you need um but like 
it's crystal light and fluff. Like they're not selling. <laughs> I'm so glad I got that reaction for crystal light. If you've ever had crystal light, you're, 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 you're just, you just stopped dead in your tracks because you forgot what it was. And then you remembered that your mom used to put um, like a carcinogenic powder in your water all summer long. There was a calorie free like version of Kool-Aid and it sort of tasted like, um, I don't know. It sort of, it's just, I always thought, I always thought it was, I always thought crystal light was sort of, you know, what 35 year old mothers used to drink after doing their Jane Fonda workouts. I, it may be because it was no calories, but then why could no you calories. have water with a squeeze of lemon, which I don't know. Maybe no. that's call me crazy. Maybe that would erode your teeth, but that stuff was definitely eroding your colon. So I don't know. Like anyway, um, the point is that this American food.ie is not just selling a place, it's selling a time, you know, and that there's, it's selling you like the nineties. It's an, it's, it's a nostalgia factory. And, um, it's a nostal- but it's also great because, um, Dollards, which is a grocery store has, um, around the corner of whatever it's the Dean and DeLuca and it's around the corner and they have an American section and they get it and from them. Yeah. From American and food. And basically the American section, and I love it because I think that this is how also Irish people perceive the way we Americans eat. So the entire thing is fluff, Apple Jacks, Oreo cereal, and Reese's cereal, which I didn't even know existed. Oh, that sounds so good. You guys have to do an episode in the future. I would love to hear this. That that's a, the related topic of these of Irish people that go abroad to see family or do the J one thing, and they like have a an ex, a food experience there, and they come back and they hunger for a version of that. And there's like this kind of dream factory of culinary experiences. Like the, I think the American section of Dollard sounds like it's serving that need, or like the insane phenomenon of donuts here, which are like pumped up Everywhere. steroidal <laughs> versions of American so donuts. Steroid. Yeah, they're they're so there's, but they also often have like American flags on them and stuff. Like there is there's a relationship there to the experience. But for that, we're gonna have to bring in a real live red blooded Irish person and talk to them about it. Um, can I say Can there's I a know? group, sorry, in Facebook that of Americans looking for a taste of home, if anybody listening is American and is looking for that, and it has over 350 um, members. And I think they are looking for this type of food that the nostalgia. Um, um, and just one burger helper. Yeah. Sorry? Again, it's like, you're not going to know what I just said, Blanca, but I just said, it's like hamburger helper. I've seen that. Oh, you know about that? Well, I stuffed, <laughs> like a creepy animated stuffing. hand that looks like it wants to stick its finger up your butt. <laughs> and it actually takes ground up meat and somehow makes it edible for like 11-year-old children. It's the craziest like ad campaign. Anyway, go ahead. Um, also, but um, Julia, because you and I grew up really near to each other, did you ever see the Irish food section at the Amity Stop and Shop? No. <gasps> Oh my God. It's amazing because, you know, my, I should probably not say this, my stepfather's English, but um, they call it that, and that's where my mother used to go to buy my stepfather things, but they called it Irish because they think there was a bigger Irish diaspora in New Haven, West Haven. Well, plus there's an overlap, I assume, there for things like brown yeah. sauce or, you know. Well, it's brown, it was basically brown sauce, Heinz, um, Heinz beans, fruit pastilles. That's the Irish section. Yeah. Um, trying to think what else would have been there. That's really, and, I want to go, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I The corned beef thing is, um, that was such a satisfying story, May. I really, I never made the connection that corned beef wasn't here because <laughs> I'd never yeah. gone looking for it. But 
Um, the other thing, the one last thing, I should just back to the tourist thing. Um, can we talk about the smoking ban? The smoking ban that happened in 2004. Okay, like so many Irish people I know smoke. And there was a just, you know, and Ireland was the first country to ban smoking. Oh, and you world. think they were catering to Americans? Yes. I was reading a couple of articles and and basically, I don't know whether they were deliberately catering to Americans, but there were a lot of American tourists being like, finally, I can go to a pub and listen to music and have a wonderful experience because there's just not all this smoke. Yeah. God, you know what I realized is actually my signature as a co-host of this podcast? Not introducing the podcast. In fact, yeah. I was going to say anti-introduction. <laughs> In fact, anti-introduction. Like I deliberately find ways to get around it. <laughs> like, um, and I listened. Remember last week we released an episode for our, our last episode about. Um, Indian, Indian food in Ireland was rec- like the first thing we recorded in the studio. And I'm like, hi, this is Spice Bags. And I'm Julia, <laughs> historian. And Blanca's like, I'm Blanca, food researcher. And, <laughs> and May's like, I'm May, right? <laughs> I'm a food writer. <laughs> I'm like, we're all like, so we didn't do it all right up front. You know what I mean? And obviously that just doesn't fly with me. I'm like, Absolutely. Yeah, no, but you also like to introduce yourself as an idiot. You went through that. I did try to introduce myself as an idiot a couple of times. Then I just then I just dropped introdu- introducing the thing the, the, all together. So whoever you get, you know, maybe maybe get someone that in- could introduce a podcast because I certainly can't. But I love to swing around and uh, do it in the back, do it in the back end. So this has been <laughs> Spice Bags. I have been Julia Langbein. <laughs> and with me today has been Blanca. May. And that's about it. See, this is so much better when you do it at the end. It's like no one sees it coming. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.